If you are disillusioned with religion, it may be time to meet the real Jesus. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. We're looking this morning at this verse. You'll find it on page 939 in the Pew Bibles. And let us pray. Show us Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. So, my friends, Romans chapter 1, verse 5, let's hear God's Word. Through whom, that is Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. Perhaps uh, you've seen the Mission Impossible uh, movies. I think uh, we've got that kind of theme going on for our missionary Christmas, perhaps. I I couldn't quite hear, but it sounded a bit like that. Perhaps you've seen those Mission Impossible movies, and they have lots of fun gadgets and gizmos, don't they? And uh, various kinds, fancy cars, all that sort of thing. One of the fun gadgets and gizmos is a mask. Perhaps you've seen that, where there'll be someone who will appear like they are a particular character in the story, and then they'll pull back the mask. And really, they're someone entirely different. Well, the point of this verse here this morning is to help us pull back the silicone mask to encounter the real Jesus. You see, today there are many fake Jesuses. Let me just suggest some. There is the cheesy Jesus. I think this Jesus is mainly associated with commercial enterprises. Sometimes it's almost shocking. One store, I was told the other week, advertised its low prices by saying they're the kind of low prices that Jesus would die for. Cheesy Christian subculture life. This verse tells us that actually Jesus is the one through whom comes real life. Not cheesy Christian subculture life. Uh, Then there is the wet Jesus. This is the Jesus who would never say no to a single person on the face of the planet, would never kill a fly, and certainly not drive the money changers out of the temple. He goes with the cultural flow and changes his opinions depending on what most people today would say. But this verse tells us that Jesus is actually the one through whom obedience to him comes. Obedience. Then there is uh, what I like to call sometimes the chainsaw Jesus. Certainly confrontational, constantly angry, and blasts anyone who disagrees. This Jesus does not turn the other cheek. He punches in the gut, saying, truth hurts. Actually, this verse in front of us today shows us that Jesus is the one through whom grace comes. Then there is baby Jesus. 
beloved of Christmas cards. He's cute and cuddly, unthreatening and ultimately useless when faced with the problems of the world. Babies are endearing, but you don't put a baby in charge of the whole universe. Well, this verse in front of us today tells us that actually Jesus is the one through whom all nations, the entire world, is changed. Then there is marginal Jesus, you know, the one who's just another among a number of other religious figures, saints, important people in church history. He's the one whose words are put on the same level as our particular religious heroes or gurus. I remember going to a meeting uh, with uh, some people who were actually pastors, a meeting, who, they were all quoting Calvin. I respect Calvin as one who preached the real Jesus, but as all these pastors were quoting Calvin, I, I wondered to myself, what would Jesus say about the subject at hand? And I quoted Jesus, and it was like a bad smell had entered the room. The verse in front of us tells us that it is through Jesus <laughs> all this happens. Not an icon or saint of whatever tradition. Then there is trendy Jesus. This is the Jesus who only died for people who are particularly cool and uh, have uh, figured out what the latest fashion may be in evangelical subculture or in the world at large. Somehow they cannot quite imagine a Jesus who would die for nerds too. But this is the Jesus through whom all not just the good-looking people, all (laughs) nations come, every tribe and language and people. Then, of course, there is churchy Jesus, finally. This is the Jesus who just reflects whatever our particular culture loves to worship. I don't know whether you've noticed this, but it seems to me the pictures of Jesus in every country I visit look remarkably like the people in that country. English pictures of Jesus look like he practically could be having a cup of tea with the Queen. And when I lived in Eastern Europe, pictures of Jesus looked like an Eastern European. Actually, newsflash, I guess he looked Jewish. This verse tells us that Jesus, the real historical biblical Jesus, is the one through whom All this grace and faith occurs, the real Jesus. So this morning, if you are here saying, I am disillusioned with religion, seen it all before, I've heard it all before, I wonder whether you have encountered the real Jesus. And I want to present him to you in three ways that Paul presents, three life-changing real results. First is grace, real grace, through whom we have received a grace and apostleship. They go together in Paul's thinking, as I'll explain. The real Jesus is grace. Now, of course, when Christians think of grace, they think of the well-known classic, amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's a great hymn, but it's not a perfect or complete explanation of grace. For instance, someone mentioned to me the other day, It has no mention of the atonement in it at all. 
But also its view of grace is different from the one aspect of grace that Paul describes here. He says, through Jesus we have received grace and apostleship. And in Paul's mind, the two go together. We think of grace as passive, something we simply lay back and soak in. We give each other grace, which means we let someone off the hook. We get grace from God, which means to be able to get our own way sometimes. Now, of course, there is a glorious truth that grace is amazing in the sense that it's complete forgiveness. But grace is not only amazing in that way, it is also enabling. For Paul, grace was connected to his work, to his mission, to his purpose. It was grace and apostleship. And the two go together in Paul's thinking. He's explained to us here then a model for our lives, not just for apostles or pastors or missionaries, but bankers, students, mothers, fathers, children, students. And it's one of Paul's characteristic ways of thinking that grace is enabling. He puts it the same way in Romans 15 uh, verse 15. He says there, this grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus. So this grace enables, empowers, and acts. It's connected to him serving Jesus. It's given me by God to be a minister, to serve. His task was a grace. He says the same thing in Ephesians 3, verse 8. This grace was given me. what, What do you mean by that, Paul? What kind of grace? What is this grace? It was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So what was the grace? It was given to him to do something, in his case to be an apostle. It was a grace. So the way Paul thought about grace for him, and also as a model to us, he's returning to his own life as a model to the Romans and to us, is as enabling Earlier in Ephesians, he makes the same point more generally. For by grace you've been saved. Now that's more the language of that well-known hymn, Amazing Grace. But then it carries on, doesn't it? For we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now that is enabling grace as well as amazing grace. Actually, I've rewritten the first stanza of Amazing Grace. I've always written poetry. I'm a poet, though you did not know it. And I've played with the words that we sing at football games as well as in church to make this point about grace and apostleship. The original is this, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Wonderful words written by John Newton. A great truth that I sing with all my heart. But this is also true about grace, an idea less familiar to us. And part of the reason, I suspect, why we have so many fake, ineffective Jesuses today, not amazing grace, but enabling grace. Listen to this. Enabling grace, how sweet the sound that serves a world like this. Serves. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was still, that is, without purpose or meaning but now assist, that is help, have purpose, serve. Now, I suspect I will not be winning any poetry prize, but it makes the point, no Booker Prize for my poetry, but I think it makes the point, enabling grace. Perhaps you don't take my word for it. Listen then to the great Augustine. 
God's mercy goes before the unwilling to make him willing. It follows the willing to make his will effectual. So God's grace does not finish with saving us. You know, I was not saved and then I had grace and now I go ahead. No, God's grace creates a masterpiece in your life. It gives you confidence and bravery to know that the time is always right to do what is right. It helps you tell not our God how big our problems are, but our problems about how big our God is. This grace that is amazing enables us. It saves. It also makes the unwilling willing. You see, without this grace, church becomes a group of the unable chosen by the unwilling to do the unimportant. But because grace is enabling, we're chosen by God for a great task and enabled to do it too. That task may be to suffer. With grace, we understand that the real problem of suffering is not that humble, kind people suffer, but that some people do not. None of us deserve grace. It changes our view of life because we've been chosen for a purpose. We are His masterpiece. We're not like someone who's just told to go and do lots of stuff for God. We have this truly amazing grace which enables us because it tells us that we are approved, loved, called, made for a purpose. So you see your work of whatever kind, at home, in the study, in the office, It's an expression of amazing grace. It's enabling grace. So receive the real Jesus for real grace, but also real faith. Real faith. Now this is the obedience of faith that Paul writes about here. Paul returns to this unusual phrase again at the end of Romans, Romans 16 verse 26. Let me explain it for us with a historical example which has current relevance. In the 18th century, a fellow by name of Robert Sanderman and his father-in-law, John Glass, came up with a novel take on faith. They decided that faith, justifying faith, was simply intellectual assent to a proposition or truth. They maintained that Justifying faith is a simple assent to the divine testimony concerning Jesus Christ, differing in no way from belief in any ordinary testimony. Now, this concept, which came to be known as Sandemanianism, persuaded a few but was rejected as unorthodox in the end by most. Faith is more than intellectual assent. It's a living trust in Jesus. However, my impression is that the same idea, Sandemanianism, actually affects many people today, for it scratches where we itch. It tells us what we want to hear, that it's simply intellectual assent. We just believe, meaning we simply accept the truth of Jesus, and that is it. This phrase, obedience of faith, stands against all the fake Jesuses, that modern forms of Sandemanianism create. One very well-known Baptist preacher called Christmas Evans, much used by God, became influenced by this wrong idea. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his multi-volume series on Romans, describes the effect on him like this, and I quote, He developed a terrible dryness of soul and continued like that for years with an utterly ineffective ministry until... 
he suddenly realized that the cause of his trouble was that his heart had been unmoved and cold. He was saying the right things, but he was not feeling their power and their influence. His release came through a great experience given to him as he journeyed along a road near a mountain called Kada Idris. Suddenly the Spirit came down again into his heart and melted it so that he went back home free from bondage and was the means of a great revival in the district in which he lived. Faith is not mere assent. It's the power of God to believe. It is the obedience of faith. Paul is really thinking like a Hebrew. In the Old Testament, faith and faithfulness are very closely connected ideas. For there is a power, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, a spiritual power from God that comes as God moves in my heart And I trust Him. I I fall down before Him and I am renewed and revived and come back to life. I meet the real Jesus and have faith in Him. Now, do you want that? I certainly hope so. Think on this phrase, the obedience of faith. I still like the story I discovered some years ago in an Oz Guinness book about faith to illustrate this distinction. He described how a European was discussing faith of the Maasai tribesmen. The tribesmen rejected the word the European used in his language, too much like a scent, he felt. That, he said, is like a hunter shooting an animal with a gun from a great distance. But true faith, he said, is like the way a lion hunts. His nose and eyes and ears pick up the prey. His legs give him the speed to catch it. All the power in his body is involved in the terrible death leap and a single blow to the neck with the front paw, the blow that actually kills. And as the animal goes down, the lion envelops it in his arms, pulls it to himself and makes it part of himself. This is the way a lion kills. This is the way a man believes. This is what faith is. Now, perhaps it's not normal to associate hunting with faith, but there is some truth to it. Except, of course, because the power is God's, we are the hunted, and He is the hunter. This true faith, sometimes said, spelt R-I-S-K, risk. Or as the Puritan William Amos put it in his New England textbook of theology, Faith, this true faith, is a resting of a heart on God. When we have that, it makes all the difference in church life. I hear it said that live churches are constantly changing. Dead churches don't have to. Live churches have lots of noisy kids. Dead churches are fairly quiet. Live churches' expenses always exceed their budget. Dead churches have few ministries and low income. Life churches are constantly improving for the future. Dead churches worship their past. Life churches move out in faith. Dead churches operate by human sight. Life churches focus on people. Dead churches focus on programs. Life churches are filled with tithers. 
Dead churches are filled with tippers. Live churches dream great dreams of God. Dead churches relive their nightmares. Live churches don't have cannot in their dictionary. Dead churches have nothing but cannot. Live churches evangelize. Dead churches fossilize. And it all comes down to this obedience of faith, you see, because of the real Jesus. I don't think that just knowing about Jesus is enough. Do not make that mistake. I plead with you. John Owen said, those living in the knowledge of faith but not in its power are very close to atheism. You sit there and say, I know about Jesus. I know you know about Jesus. But have you met the real Jesus? Do you have this obedience of faith? If you're disillusioned with religion, you come across Christians not living as Christians. It may well be that they are Sandemanians. They need a Christmas Evans experience of the real Jesus. Pray for them. Pray now if it is you. The real Jesus is faith, grace, and finally receive the real name of Jesus. For the sake of his name among all the nations. In the original, Paul concludes with the name of him. For all this is God-centered, it's all God-glorifying, specifically Christ-honoring, actually focused on the name. Now, what is in a name? The person. In ancient times and modern times, your name stands for you. It is shorthand for who you are, what you represent, your values, your opinions, your morals, your life. And so one of the most privileged, precious tasks of a parent is to choose a name for a child. I've done that now four times with our children. It's always a bit of a wrestle to figure out what we're actually going to call this child. You, you buy the baby books. You go down the lists of names. You check online for what is the most popular name right now, and you decide whether you want to choose that or something very rare and unusual. You, you choose a name that perhaps reflects the name of a loved an honored ancestor, or has reference to an important value of yours, or is the name of a biblical character or truth. The Puritans loved to use the fruit of the Spirit as names for their children. Constance was a favorite of theirs. But they also used biblical names. And so we bring a child for baptism or dedication. We're very conscious of the meaning of a name. We hope the name will give our child a sense of our blessing and our encouragement for them. We, we disparage anyone misusing our name or name calling or dragging our name through the dirt. And so in the Bible, of course, names often had great significance. Abraham to Abraham, representing the promise that he would become the father of many. Moses, as he was drawn out of the water to become a rescuer, drawing others out. Yeshua, Jesus, the Savior. Paul meant small, which perhaps explains why we think he was small. It may have encouraged him to realize that through the small things of the world, God can overcome great things. My grandmother, who was very, very small, was told by her father that the best gifts come in small packages. Names, 
names, names. What is there in Jesus' name? Life. John 20, verse 31, that by believing you may have life in His name. There's nothing magical about the name of Jesus. The name represents the person. So when we talk about the name of Jesus, we mean Jesus Himself. And when Paul says this is for the sake of His name, Jesus' name, among all nations, he means this is for Jesus' honor and fame. You say, well, what does that matter for me? A couple of years ago, a very well-known comedian gave his last monologue on TV. He was joking around about how there'd be a couple of guys in a bar, and they'd be saying, you know, do you remember old so-and-so, this comedian's name? And they'd say, yes, wasn't he great? And the other guy would say, he's dead, you know. And the other one would say, really, I hadn't heard. What an epitaph, the famous comedian joked. Ironically, I remember this show, two years later, he was dead. And if I gave you his name, you would not have heard of him. In fact, I cannot remember myself. But this name, life in his name. Who would have thought that a simple carpenter from the middle of nowhere would have a name which would still be on the lips of millions of people today. It would not have seemed so at the time. I can tell you that. The the famous people were Josephus, Augustus, Pilate, a rich businessman, the gladiator sports star. Names, names that now we only discover when we scratch beneath the sands of Egypt. As Shelley put it, I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions red which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings, look on my works ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Ozymandias, king of kings. I have news for you, Ozymandias. It's his name. So why does that matter for me? Well, you want to do something that will last forever? That will have true global significance? That will change the world? Do it for this name, for Jesus. Someone gave me a collection of Augustine's devotional works some months ago. They're on my shelf in my kind of little inner office. Uh, They've set it up so there's an office where, you know, to disturb me, you practically have to use a kind of four-by-four and six 16-ton trucks to get to me, you know. And So there I am in my inner office when I'm studying away, and right there on the way out, there's a collection of Augustine's devotional works. I grab it on the way out. I read a couple as I'm 
sort of breezing out the door to motivate me, to encourage me. And I think if only I could write or speak one sentence like that old swan, as he was called. And I also think they are full of Jesus. See, the more what you do and say and speak and write or clean, I knew a cleaner once who seemed to spend all her life telling rich businessmen about Jesus. I couldn't figure out how she knew them all. The answer was she cleaned their floors. Her work will last. It will last. It will have a global significance. You study. You make money. You give money. That will have a global significance. You go on mission here and there. You write poetry, you make deals, you sell cars, you make cars. For the name, you find life. Now, I know, disillusioned with Jesus' friend, I know terrible things have been done in the name of Jesus. It was the British Marxist and politician Tony Benn who said, it is as wholly wrong to blame Marx for what was done in his name as it is to blame Jesus for what was done in his. Well, I can agree with half that sentence. For when someone does something in Jesus' name, you have to ask whether what they're doing is really in Jesus' name or whether it's a fake Jesus. There's a few streets in Oxford in the United Kingdom. I'm from Cambridge, but I still like to talk about Oxford sometimes. And in the city of Oxford in the United Kingdom, there are streets called Broad, High, and also Jesus. Of course, there's Broad Church, High Church, and then there's Jesus. Broad Street, High Street. Jesus Street, and there's an old joke among the religious there that says, what does Broad Street and the church have in common? And the answer is, you can go from broad to high, bypassing Jesus. So true. But the name, this name, It's humbling, isn't it? It puts into perspective all that we think we know when we study or read blogs or cuddle up to our current religious hero and spout his ideas as our own with the idea that we are as great as he is, whatever Ozymandias it may be. This name, for him, don't be disillusioned with religion. Meet this Jesus. little story as we come to an end. There's a, there's a drunk who stumbles upon a baptismal service. I come from the Church of England, but I served in a Southern Baptist church for about 10 years or so. <clears throat> I was an Englishman serving in New England in a Southern Baptist church, which is about the most counterintuitive church you could possibly imagine. But anyway, I served in this Southern Baptist church, so I picked up some wonderful Baptist jokes along the way, and this is one of them. And there's a drunk who stumbles upon a baptismal service on a Sunday afternoon down by the river and he, he sort of walks into the water and he stands next to the poor pastor and the pastor turns, notices the old drunk and says, oh, are, you, are you ready to meet Jesus? And the drunk looks back and says, yes, sir, I am. And so the pastor, you know, after a moment's hesitation, proceeds to pull him under the water and he comes back up and the pastor says, have you found Jesus? And the drunk says, no, I didn't. Pastor then, rather confused, puts him under yet again for a little bit longer this time and says, Now, have you found Jesus? And the drunk says, No, I did not. Disgusted, the pastor holds the man under for at least 30 seconds. 
He brings him up and he demands, have you found Jesus yet? And the old drunk wipes the water off his face and says, are you sure this is where he fell in? Perhaps you're looking in the wrong place. If you looked here, not what that guy did to you those years ago, not what she said or he said, this Jesus, this name, the real Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, we uh, think of that story of that evangelist preacher who found his heart to become very dry and tired, realized that he had fallen to this idea that it was just simply assent, intellectual assent. Perhaps there's some people here for whom that is true. They may not be preachers, they may be bankers or students. They've grown up in the church and they've they've heard the Heidelberg Catechism and they know it all and yet they think that's all there is. We pray uh, this morning that... uh, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, you would come upon them and they would encounter you, Jesus. Father, we also pray for our neighbors, many of whom have only heard of Jesus through TV evangelists or seen distorted images of church some of whom have been hurt by religious figures, would you give us great skill, wisdom, and perseverance to present to them the real Jesus? We pray as we meet him, we would arise and give you glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.